0: If you have a a copy of God's Word, then I'd encourage you to turn to Isaiah, or I'm sorry, I'm so used to saying Isaiah, you'll see why. Uh, I'd encourage you to turn to Luke chapter 4. Luke chapter 4 is what we're going to look at in God's Word this morning. If you've been with us, you know that we have, uh, during the Advent season, uh, we've been looking at the book of Isaiah, and we've seen week after week countless images and pictures uh, that point to the Christmas story. Uh, we looked at Isaiah chapter 9, for unto us a child is born, a son is given, and the government shall rest upon his shoulder. We've looked at Isaiah 7, therefore the Lord will give you a sign, behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. Uh, All throughout the the series, I've often wondered, uh, what did Isaiah understand about all of these prophecies that were given to him by the Lord? Did he understand all the pictures and all the images and what they meant? Did he understand years later the specifics of how Jesus was born to Mary and Joseph? And so I've wondered that all throughout the season but one of the things I was talking to someone about this past week is that we could just as easily do a Lenten series in the book of Isaiah as well. And what I mean by that is the prophet does speak in amazing ways and pictures and images of the birth of our Savior Jesus Christ, but also he talks a lot about what's called the suffering servant, pictures, images about this suffering servant that give us this immensely clear picture that a servant will come who must suffer for his people in order to bring about forgiveness and the redemption of sins. Now, as we look at Luke chapter 4, we come to the person of Jesus Christ. And one of the things that I've often wondered is this, what did Jesus think growing up as he read these words from the prophet Isaiah? And he would have read all these words From the prophet Isaiah. What did his heart feel as he read these prophecies about his birth, about uh, a coming brutal death, about his own second coming? What emotions conjured in the heart of Jesus as he would read these prophecies week in and week out? Of course, we don't really know the answer to that question, um, but we do have part of the answer in Luke chapter 4. We're going to read this this morning, where Jesus clearly sees himself in the prophecies of Isaiah, and he's not afraid to tell other people about it. So I'm going to be reading from Luke chapter 4, uh, verses, let's see, 16 uh, through verse 30. So this is uh, God's word. And he, speaking of Jesus, came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll, and he gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, Is not this Joseph's son? And he said to them, Doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, Physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And he said, Truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown, When they heard these things all in the synagogue were filled with wrath and they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so that they could throw him down the cliff but passing through their midst he went away Father thank you for your word thank you for uh, the powers uh, the powerful words of Isaiah that we've read all throughout the advent season be with us now as we as we look at how Jesus interacted with these incredible words and how he declared that all of those prophecies of Isaiah were true about him. Father, whenever we study our Savior, whenever we look at him in the scriptures, Lord, I pray that our hearts would be captivated by our Messiah, that our hearts would be captivated by our Savior who came to give himself up for us. So we pray as we look at this passage this morning, you would enlighten our, our, the eyes of our heart to see the beauty of our Savior, and be renewed in the good news of the gospel. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. So our passage from Luke chapter 4, it really is a groundbreaking moment in the public ministry of Jesus Christ. And the gospel writer Luke really wants us to understand its significance, but he also wants to bring us a question. We're going to look at that this morning. This passage is about Jesus in the synagogue where he unrolls a scroll and he uses the, the prophecies of Isaiah 61 to talk about why he was here, uh, to talk about his mission and to talk about his identity. And we might ask the sort of question, well, what makes this passage in particular so significant? What, what, what does Luke, the gospel writer, really want us to see about the significance of this event? Well, to understand its significance, you have to understand a little bit about the context in which this story is happening. It's happening right after Jesus had just spent 40 days in the wilderness. If you know the story of Jesus in the wilderness, he was there uh, fasting, being tempted by the devil about the the nature of the kingdom, and uh, he spent 40 days in the desert facing those temptations. After those 40 days, uh, Luke tells us that upon Jesus' return... Uh, people were starting to talk about him a little bit. They probably wondered why he disappeared for 40 days, and so the rumors and the reports about him were starting to swirl all around that area in the Mediterranean world. And so at this point, Jesus decides that he's going to return home, and he's going to go back to his home synagogue, the place of worship that he had worshiped in his whole life, his home church, And everyone that was there, not just in his town, but in that synagogue, everyone who was there was starting to form an opinion about who Jesus was, or at least a different opinion than they'd had before. And what Luke wants us to see from our passage is that Jesus elicited a lot of responses. We're going to see that in our passage Uh, Jesus actually demands a response and that's what Jesus did everywhere he went he said things in such a way that you had to respond it demanded a response and often those responses were very strong and we'll see that this morning but that wasn't just true of Jesus's day it's true now he demands responses then and he demands responses from us as well today In fact, a good question to either ask folks as you talk about your faith or even to ask yourself, a good question to ask folks is how do they respond to Jesus? When they look at Jesus, when they hear the stories about Jesus, how do they respond? What does it do inside of them? What does it move them to? A lot of people, they'll they'll probably respond with, I don't know, we could say a, a sort of detached respect. They'll look at Jesus and they'll say, wow, he was an interesting historical figure. He said a lot of interesting things. No doubt he started a a religion that grew very fast. And so when they look at Jesus, they have a a sort of detached respect for him. Others will look at Jesus and they'll say, "Uh, how could Jesus say those things? How could Jesus do the things and say the things he did? And so some will look at Jesus and they'll respond with anger. But more often than not in our culture today and people we interact with, we get sort of a cold apathy, right? When they look at Jesus, well, does it really matter? What difference does it make? Jesus is irrelevant to the way I live my life today. But some, but some, respond with belief. They respond with belief in who Jesus was, what he did, and what he came to accomplish. So as we look at our passage this morning, we see a lot of responses, always very strong responses. At first, we see that they honored Jesus, then they were sort of intrigued by Jesus, then they marveled at Jesus, and then at the very end, they were filled with wrath. They were enraged by Jesus. And so I want to look at the progression of this response, this huge range of emotions that was felt by all those people in a relatively short period of time, but also to reflect on what one commentator says is, if Jesus was trying to be killed at the beginning of his ministry, wasn't that a taste or a foreshadow of what would happen at the end of his ministry as well? So the question is, what sent these people from wanting to honor him at the very beginning to wanting to kill him at the very end? Well, guess what? The book of Isaiah had uh, something to say about that, about why their emotions shifted so strongly. So again, the context, the, the stage for our narrative is set for us in the little town of Nazareth. And if you don't know, Nazareth was Jesus's hometown it's where he spent the the first 3 decades roughly the first 30 years of his life simply as the son of Mary and Joseph probably as a carpenter working under his father in his carpentry shop like we said before uh, after those 30 years G- Jesus disappears in the wilderness for a little while and he clearly comes back changed from that episode He comes back, he begins to teach in the synagogues, and everywhere he was teaching, it caused quite a stir. There was rumors, there was innuendos, there was reports scattered all around. And so our passage tells us that, that Jesus now arrives at home. He comes home. And initially, the crowd that was there honored Jesus. It says in verse 16, "...as was his custom..." He went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day and he stood up to read. Now, that might seem like an insignificant detail, but it actually is a sign that they were honoring him at this moment. And uh, I'll tell you why. First of all, it's important for us to, to see, we can't miss the fact that Jesus was consistently in the synagogue on the Sabbath day. Now, Jesus was there because he was raised as a devout Jew and he followed Judaism. And that meant that he was on the synagogue for the Sabbath day, day in and day out, week in and week out. But if you know anything about this period of time in Judaism, you'll know that it was quite an honor to be selected to read and to speak in the synagogue. Uh, It's not like where we are at church today where we're always fishing for volunteers and If you've got a pulse, we'll put you to work in a church right now, right? Um, Back in Jesus' day, uh, they weren't fishing for volunteers. It was an honor to be able to read in uh, a synagogue. And so it was a great honor for Jesus to be allowed to read from the Torah in this context. Some people would grow up in uh, the synagogue their whole life and never have a chance to read in a synagogue service. And so Jesus gets this honor But also don't miss who the crowd is at the synagogue that day, who this audience would have been comprised of. Probably Jesus' parents are there. Probably his his whole extended family was there. Uh, His Sunday school teachers were there. Uh, The nursery workers that changed his diapers were in the audience that day. The carpentry customers were probably there. Those uh, who Jesus played with on the playground, those he went to school with, those he played with, they were all grown up and there as well. And so this entire network of Jesus' first three decades of his life were likely present in the synagogue that morning. There were probably no strangers there that day. Everybody knew Jesus and had known him for quite a long amount of time. And so they honored him. They asked him to read from the text that morning in the synagogue, and of course he reads, we know from our passage, from Isaiah 61, where it talks about the year of jubilee, where it talks about this coming Messiah who would come about and bring the ultimate jubilee. Uh, the ultimate release, the ultimate restoration. The passage talks about how God's Spirit would rest upon him and that his coming would bring sight to the blind, that he would bring freedom to the poor and the oppressed, and and he would be a sign of God's love and a sign of God's favor. So Jesus reads this short passage, tells tells us he rolls up the scroll, he puts it down, And then he goes and he sits down amongst the crowd. I imagine that you could have heard a pin drop in that moment. Why? Because they were all in that moment intrigued by him. They were intrigued by him. It says, verse 20, and all the eyes of the synagogue were fixed upon him. Now, what were they wondering? They probably heard the rumors They'd probably heard the reports that Jesus had come back from the wilderness changed, and so they wanted to hear more from him. They wanted to hear more from Jesus. And so in a very distinctly Jewish way, what would happen in the synagogue in Jesus' day is that someone would offer a text, and then they would offer commentary on that text, so a person that was given the honor of reading a passage, they would want to hear more. What do you think this text means? Or offer your opinion and your commentary, and then there'd be all this debate and controversy and, uh, and discussion that would happen in the context of the synagogue. And so they all wanted to know, okay, Jesus has read this passage, but, but what does Jesus have to say about this passage? What does Jesus have to say about the Messiah and what it means? So verse 21, he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Today this has been fulfilled in your hearing. You can imagine they were, hold on. Hold on, Jesus. What are you really saying here? Are you saying, Jesus, that all of these prophecies that we've heard our whole lives, all of these prophecies that have been around for hundreds of years, all of these prophecies are, are, are now being fulfilled in this moment? Is Jesus really saying here that he is the Messiah that Isaiah had spoken about in so many different ways? There's so many images and so many pictures. Just imagine how shocking this must have been for everyone who heard it that morning when Jesus said the things that he said and so they went from being honoring him to being intrigued by him. And now it says they were marveled. They were marveled. They were amazed by what was coming out of his mouth. It says there in verse 22 and all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming out of his mouth. You see, at this point, don't miss what's happening here. At this point, Jesus had claimed. To be the very fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecies. What that means is that they had all read those same passages from Isaiah over and over and over again, just as Jesus had read them over and over again in his childhood. He, like everybody else, had waited and waited for the Messiah to come and to liberate them from Roman oppression. They'd all longed for the Messiah to come to fulfill all of their deepest desires. Is Jesus really saying that he is the one? That he is the one they've been waiting for for so many decades and so many years? In fact, it says in verse 22 and they said, and don't miss this, it's an important verse. And they said, Is not this Joseph's son? Is not this Joseph's son? Just imagine yourself there for a moment. If you were sitting there, would you believe the words? that were coming out of Jesus' mouth? Would you have a, a hard time believing what he was saying as well? Which is eventually why we see at the end of the story that eventually they were enraged by him. Verse 28, when they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. So Jesus here kept teaching. He offered his commentary, he said, I've, I'm the fulfillment of these words, but then he kept talking. And as he kept talking, they got more angry. He spoke about how hard it is for prophets to be accepted in their own town. That was, of course, was true of Isaiah, and Jesus is saying, it's about to happen to me. As a great prophet, the great prophet from God, I'm about to be rejected by my hometown. He told them stories about Elijah and Elisha about how their ministry included Gentiles, people outside the Jewish nation. He told them how the kingdom of God would not come to the well-to-do, but they would come to the poor and oppressed. Effectively, what Jesus was saying was this. He was saying that, yes, he was the Messiah. Yes, he was the, uh, the fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecies. But he effectively saying to them was this. But all of this isn't going to go the way you think it is. All of this isn't going to go the way you think it is. And at that moment, that's when they turned on Jesus. And they made every effort they could in that moment to execute him because of blasphemy, because of the things that came out of his mouth. So even as I say that, again, think about this context. Because these aren't strangers. This is Jesus' hometown. These are his friends. This is his family and his extended family. This is the community that had raised him. And now in a moment, they've all turned and they want to execute him for the things that he has said. Imagine the heart of Jesus. We can only imagine it, but imagine the heart of Jesus. The hurt and the rejection that Jesus must have felt because those who were closest to him were now plotting to execute him for the things that he said. Of course we know at the end of the story that Jesus escaped. He escaped in this moment, but one day he would not escape their attempts to end his life and to execute him. So the question is why does Luke tell us this story? Luke's the only gospel writer that tells us this story. And so why does he tell us this story? What is What does he want us to sit with as we think about this narrative? He wants us to ask, how come this crowd, of course, turned on Jesus so quickly? But I think Luke, and you see this all throughout the Gospels, he wants wants us to put ourselves in the story and to think about how we would respond. If you were there, how would you have responded to Jesus in this moment? Would you have turned on him as well. Now, of course, we know in the story they all did turn on him. They turned on him because Jesus didn't fit their narrative of how they thought the world should work, about how all this kingdom of God business should work, about how all this redemption story worked. They couldn't get on board with Jesus' narrative about how all of this should work. And they weren't the only ones. Jesus, of course, was an incredibly polarizing figure. Even later, he admits that uh, that, that he's going to bring a lot of divisions in families and in communities and in cultures. His ministry and teaching would bring division. He knew that the words of the kingdom would always evoke a very strong response out of people. So, of course, Luke wants us to ask the question, how will you respond to? To Jesus. How will you respond to the real Jesus? And I add in the real Jesus for this reason. I say the real Jesus because you and I, all of us, we tend to embrace a Jesus of our own liking rather than often the Jesus that's presented to us in the scriptures. How do we know whether we do that? Well, we tend to believe in a Jesus that acts according to how we think the world should work, right? We have our own opinions about how the world should work, about how even God should work, and sometimes God goes according to that plan. More often than not, he doesn't. And how do we respond when he doesn't? Or think about it this way. If if the Jesus you believe in agrees with you completely all of the time. If the Jesus, you, you know, he just always seems to agree with your opinion and your plan for things, uh, and he seems to work perfectly with how you think the world should work, then that probably means that you've bought into an image of Jesus that is not the real Jesus. You've fashioned a God in your own image rather than the God we see in the Scriptures. Because God often doesn't fit our patterns or our plans or our purposes. His plans are very often different than our own. If you look to the real Jesus of the scriptures, then it's probably going to mean there are times that you're going to really disagree with God. You're going to really disagree with Jesus. It probably means you're going to be regularly offended by the things that he says or even asks you to do. It means that he will not ever usually operate according to your plans and your purposes. That's that's the sort of God that we worship. The question becomes this, when that happens, when God doesn't act according to your script or act the way you think he should, when that happens, will you reject him just as the town of Nazareth did or will you submit to him as Lord? Yes. Yes. Jesus is the Messiah, but he's the Messiah they didn't expect, and he's often the Messiah that we don't expect either. He said things that often make us shake our heads, and scratch our heads maybe a little bit, and question. His plans and his purpose, they are different than ours. He will offend us from time to time, and we certainly will disagree with him from time to time. And when those things happen, how will you respond? See, Jesus does all those things, but what he also does is this. What he offers us is far greater than what we could even imagine. Why? Because our text tells us words of grace flow from his mouth. What he offers us is greater than whatever we can imagine. Why? Because he is the Messiah the one who came to bring release. One day he did allow the executioners to have their way so that you and I could be forgiven. And so while he is a God who often doesn't act according to our script, according to our plans, or according to our purposes, he is at the same time indeed the one who our hearts most long for. And so how will you respond to this Jesus. Let's pray.